Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Every week we talk to candidates who break the mold, who do politics differently, and who, we think, have something to say about whether campaigns and elections really can change. Many of these candidates come at politics from different directions than traditional contenders. That's certainly true of Brianna Wu. Raised in the South in a conservative family, she got into video games young and it changed her life. She became a gamer and a designer of games. She's enjoyed tremendous success in that world. She's also faced challenges, taking on sexism in the industry and society. Brianna Wu is smart and bold. She's a risk taker. After Donald Trump became president, she took the risk of entering politics, running against an entrenched incumbent in a Massachusetts Democratic congressional primary. She did not win in 2018, but she learned a lot, and she's back in the running again in 2020. Brianna Wu, thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. It's such a professional pleasure. I'm a huge fan of the nation. Oh, I appreciate that. There's so much to talk about with you. You have such a remarkable background. Uh, born in West Virginia, grew up in Mississippi, lots of interesting experiences. But the one thing I'm really intrigued by is what drew you into gaming? What was the, <laughs> where, where did that uh, where did that switch flip? So, you know, I grew up, uh, by that time, my parents had moved to Mississippi. And I got to tell you, the culture of Mississippi is church and uh, local high school football. So, you know, in 1985, my parents made the terrible mistake of buying me a Nintendo Entertainment System for Christmas. Whoa. And I was just gone. Like, Final Fantasy is a way more interesting world than Mississippi was. That's really... So... So in many ways, this is a classic model because yeah. you've, you've got a, a smart young person feeling a little out of touch with their community, but then suddenly something technological takes them to a whole new place. Yeah, that's uh, it's exactly it. But, you know, I, I do have to say my parents are, they are hyper conservative, very flawed people. But something they, they did that I'm just eternally grateful for is anytime I wanted to learn anything with technology, they found a way to fund it and give me the tools that I needed to, to learn it. I was taking programming classes at the University of Southern Mississippi at only uh, 13 years old. So, you know, they bought me a computer in the 80s, which was way more expensive back then. So yeah, they really uh, saw this kind of uh, attraction that I had to computers and technology and really helped me uh, get a foothold for an engineering career. And you were kind of on it at a very young age. You're talking about taking classes at 13, but you were still a teenager when you were starting an animation company or that's true it's absolutely true yeah we completely failed but my first startup for a quarter of a million dollars was a animation startup and i i really i feel like there's no college that could have taught me what i learned in that experience not just getting in on after effects style animation from the the very earliest version of the program but things like how to hire a team how to surround yourself with people that share your values these are unbelievably important skills. If I'm not mistaken, it was an iPhone that actually just the getting an iPhone or seeing an iPhone that in many ways caused you to start thinking about starting a company? Absolutely. Uh, you know, in 2008, you know, I'm a bisexual woman and uh, I 
to my great surprise, uh, fell in love with the man and married my husband, Frank Wu. And, you know, we got married, I think it was uh, 2008, just before Obama was elected. And um, we found ourselves moving to Massachusetts. And I kind of left my career behind in Colorado to uh, you know, marry my husband and you know, move to the same state as him. And I was kind of like, what am I going to do here? I want to start a career over again. The iPhone just come out. And in particular, I don't know if your listeners are gamers, but uh, Unreal Engine is a very, very important piece of technology that started in 1998. That's, it's basically a 3D engine for video games. They ported a version of that for the iPhone and had just some of the most stunning interactive graphics I had ever seen. And I was like, you know, I'm looking at the next 20 years of computing right here here. So I decided to get in on the game uh, ground floor. I made a minimally viable product, hired a team and founded a game studio right here in Massachusetts, hiring women. And it was interesting because you brought your values to your endeavor. I did. Your game reflected ideas and, and values more than just a commercial product. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, again, kind of going back to my childhood, I have been angry about the lack of women in video games since 1987, when Super Mario 2 came out, and Princess Peach was a playable character. Do you know it was 20 years before Nintendo allowed you to play as a woman in a core Mario game again? It wasn't until Super Mario 3D World. So, you know, I had long been just really frustrated with our industry not allowing women to be the hero. So I gave up and decided to make my own games where women got to be the hero. And obviously, as you note, this captured a lot of imaginations. Yeah. It excited a lot of people. It did. There was success to it. Yep. But you also, perhaps because you're very outspoken, perhaps because you are pushing these boundaries, you saw some of the dark side of the world of gaming and also the world of the internet. Yeah, that's really true. When I started in the game industry, I didn't do it to you know, foster a political agenda. I, uh, like for instance, I hired women for my company because I realized that the game industry was not giving women a fair shake. So I gave them jobs when they were the most qualified people I knew. And we did this and I quickly came to realize that the game industry was such a frankly, a sexist and broken industry that uh, it wasn't enough to just quietly do my own thing. I needed to speak about what uh, women were facing in our field. I'll give you an example. I have an employee at my uh, company, and she had been working at a Boston game studio, a studio that prides itself on its liberal values. And uh, she was sitting there doing some animation and all the men in the office just rush to the window and start pushing their faces up against the glass and making some of the crudest comments you can imagine. And what happened is two young women were playing volleyball downstairs in the courtyard in their bikini. And they're in her office mm. just acting like frat boys. <laughs> and it's that kind of uh, culture on a daily basis where it's just kind of exhausting to be a woman in it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And you uh, you spoke out about some of these issues. I did. And you got pushback. You had people who really, I, I'm not even sure what the right word to use is. They, people <laughs> went after you. Yeah. Most people know me from Gamergate. It was really our industry's reckoning with uh, basically 30 years of extreme sexism. I and other women in our field advocated 
for what I think is very reasonable for more women to be hired, more women to be promoted in our field. And for this, I had Steve Bannon and the alt-right set me in their sights. You know, there's no good way to have a law and order episode made about your life, but that happened to me. The most surreal moment of my entire life was watching uh, the Law and Order cast reenact the the death threats that had been sent to me. Uh, We had people with guns shoot videos of themselves uh, crashing their car on the way to my house. We had uh, cyber attacks mm. on our studio, uh, not just our you know, Git repository, but also our financials. You know, I had people show up to my college impersonating me, trying to get my records to release them online. So it was very, very extreme. I had a brick th- thrown through my window just a couple of months ago. And uh, it, their goal is to make the cost of speaking out so high that most women just choose to be silent instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, your reaction to this was to keep speaking out yeah. and to document it, to, to make it clear. Because yeah. I think a lot of people who are outside the world have a hard time imagining just how sexist it is. And, and also yeah. just how angry people can become and, and threatening. Yeah. You had to move uh, your home. I did. Didn't you? I did multiple times. I did. Um, you know, it's. For years, it was years before I uh, had a package sent to my house because I was so scared about my address getting out there. We ran a UPS box and had everything shipped to us twice. Um, It was rather extreme. But again, when you've got people, I I want to tell you something. I went to the movies one time with my husband and I got home after the movie and I checked my email and a man had followed me all around the movie theater without my knowledge and taken pictures Mm. sitting just a few rows behind me. And the message is so clearly, I know where you are and I can hurt you. Like, it's just meant to scare you. And the the rational response to that is to be fearful, right? After going through all this and and dealing with it and dealing with it in some very brave and, and very bold ways, you chose to take a next step. And you chose, not necessarily because of just what had happened with Gamergate, but also because of national political developments, the election of Steve Bannon's candidate as president of the United States, you decided you were going to make this leap into being a political candidate. I did. Tell me about that that process. Do you mind if I tell you a a story to kind of give context to this? You know, when I was in, um, I believe it was third grade in Mississippi, there was um, a kid in my class. And, you know, he knew he was gay even at a young age. I knew I was queer. And he made the the mistake of telling his parents that he was gay. Mm-hmm. And um, this was Mississippi in the 80s. They sent him to basically a, a reprogramming camp. He came back really broken, and he eventually committed suicide. What I remember at that age, even just being a child, is I just remember being stunned that grown-ups didn't stand up and speak out against what was happening. And I used to think it was just the South. And I got older and I came to realize that this isn't just Mississippi, it's everywhere. Most people, when evil is flourishing, they don't stand up, they sit down. And just for whatever reason, I'm built in a way where I couldn't live with myself if I sat it out. 
So when you fast forward a few years to the to the game industry, you know, I'm a pretty tough woman. I can handle death threats. But what I can't take is seeing my friends leave the industry one after one because no one would fight for them. So when Donald Trump was elected, the choice to stand up, that is the easiest decision I've ever made. You chose to stand up to Donald Trump. You also chose to challenge the Democratic Party. Yeah. And to say that the opposition to Trump, to Trumpism, and frankly to the politics that made a Donald Trump possible required a change in the Democratic Party. And and you entered a congressional race in 2018 against a, a very entrenched Democratic incumbent. Yeah, I, I, I'm running against Stephen Lynch. Um, I want to take you back to, it was uh, in the early 2000s, and this was the era that America was really um, starting to have a serious conversation about gay rights. And, you know, this was after Matthew Shepard was murdered and uh, Gwen Arujo was murdered. And the gay community all throughout the United States was hurting, hurting bad from those events. And I remember picking up the paper and reading a story about a, a Massachusetts congressman that was um, in the, the wake of these hate crimes was actually pushing Massachusetts to get rid of hate crimes prosecution here in our state. And that man's name was Stephen Lynch. And I remember being so hurt at that time. And I've been frustrated with him and his kind of tergiversation on uh, civil rights for 20 years. And that's a large part of why uh, this was the office I decided to run for. It's not just LGBT issues. Uh, When it comes to climate change, he doesn't do anything. He voted against Obamacare. He's the man that voted to send many of my friends to die in the Iraq war. I just think Massachusetts can do a lot better than one of the most conservative Democrats in the United States. We'll be back after these messages. Ovid TV is your new streaming service for documentaries and independent films from around the world. As a special introductory offer, save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head over to www.ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code NEXTLEFT and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. This offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films, which you can start streaming on all your favorite devices, including Apple TV and Roku. If you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday, hosted by Jamila King. It's called The Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections, alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter. 
told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Brianna Wu, who ran for Congress in 2018 in Massachusetts and is going to do so again in 2020. And you were not alone in this moment. You were one of a number of women who stood up and made, in many cases, first-time races. They literally entered into the political process challenging entrenched Democratic incumbents in primaries. Yeah. And some of them were not as conservative or not as socially conservative. Uh, Some just were viewed as, as perhaps not being as engaged or as effective. Some of these women who mounted challenges won, uh, and some of them lost. What's striking is that in your race against uh, Congressman Lynch, it was seen from the beginning as a very uphill race. Yeah. And one of your first challenges, as it has been for many of the women who've stepped up around the country, was to convince people, A, the race was necessary, rooted in some of the things you just talked about, but B, also that it was possible. Yeah. Talk to me about that a little bit. So, you know, um, it, it's it's really hard to explain the uphill battle that you have uh, in a one-party state like Massachusetts to challenge the Democratic establishment. This this is a machine here in this state. I was at a um, an Elks Club dinner the other day in my district. These are elected officials in our district. And... There's a woman keynote speaker, but before she got a chance to speak, you had a bunch of men in the Democratic Party standing up and basically congratulating each other for this and that for literally an entire hour. And then it gets to the woman that's supposed to speak, and she got 45 seconds to speak because she didn't have any time. That is such a perfect summation of what the Democratic Party can be at its worst in our state. Um, The truth is women looking to take on the establishment, we are fighting an uphill battle. We don't have connections. You know, there's no one helping us kind of along in the process. And, you know, for me, certainly as an engineer, I'm not a politician. I am most comfortable when I'm sitting behind a keyboard coding. So it was an uphill battle to kind of figure out, how do I do this? How do I, how do I uh, stand up as a credible congressional candidate and, and win? You did something that I, as somebody who covers politics, always tell folks is the essential concept. And that is that you recognize that if you're going to run for something, you, you really ought to, at some place in your head, decide you're going to run twice. Right? Yeah. And if you win the first time, well, there you go. Then you're running for reelection. Yeah. But if you lose the first time, you've built all this organization, you've built momentum, you've got ideas, and then you you come back. You'd run again. It's the logical way to do it. But a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people they take their one shot. And I'm wondering if your experience as a engineer, as somebody who likes to figure things out and solve problems, does that does that influence this? Does that do you look at politics in a way as, as something you might try to figure out? 
No, that's uh, it's dead on. And just to give your listeners a little bit of background, you know, I did run in 2018. Um, I'm very proud of the race that I ran. First time candidate, I raised about $200,000. I got almost 25% of the vote. Over 17,000 people uh, voted for me. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. But the, the second I decided to run, um, yeah, I'm an engineer. So I looked at the stats and I saw a first time candidate for federal office has a less than a 4% chance of winning. If you run again, your odds for that shoot up to a little over uh, 50%. And the reason for that is just so few people mm-hmm. run twice. So just looking at the numbers, I realized um, I was going to just as a matter of probability, I was going to need to run twice. And now that's my second time to run. It makes so much more sense to me. You know, for me as a second time candidate, I know how to do call time. I know how to set up a phone bank. I know how to recruit uh, volunteers. You know, I know how to go canvas a neighborhood. These are a set of skills that there's really no way to learn it, but to, uh, to do it. And two years is a very short cycle to learn all those skills. But at the same time, I think um, the major problem with the Democratic Party is we think way too much with our heads and not enough with our hearts. People are hurting in a way I've genuinely never seen in my lifetime. I thought it was bad in the Bush era. It is a million times worse today. So we've got to focus on working people. We've got to have real discussions about Healthcare. We've got to have real discussions about climate change, about housing affordability. We've got to let people know we're not a bunch of uh, technocrats sitting in an office. Like we are willing to fight like hell for them. And I just, I, I don't think we are successful in communicating that. And and that's an interesting thing because of your background. If you did end up in Congress you would bring to Washington knowledge and skills regarding the industries that, that A, pose many great challenges right now and that Congress wrestles with not very effectively, but B, yeah. also that could potentially produce answers. Yeah. And having a Congress that understands 21st century technology, that could be a very big deal for making that which seems impossible suddenly become possible. No, I think you're you're dead on. And, um, you know, this is one of the, the lessons I've had to learn as a, a leader of an engineering team because, you know, good leaders make, make it all about the people they serve. They don't make it all about uh, themselves. I think that's the central problem with the Trump presidency. And every single person you lead on an engineering team, you have to understand them. You have to care about them. If I have a woman on my team that needs to leave at four o'clock every day to go pick her kids up from school, I've got to have her back and let her know that's important to me. And that's very much that kind of service leadership model. I think that's what we need. But coming back to your point about uh, kind of this very high stakes technological war the United States finds itself in, I would argue that you know, climate change is a very important crisis, but we are facing an unprecedented digital war across the entire spectrum. Everything from 
you know, misinformation, information warfare, to cybersecurity, to our infrastructure being attacked, to our intellectual property being stolen. There's a, a, a factory here in Massachusetts that lost 600 jobs because China ended up stealing uh, their proprietary technology. This is the central axis of what we are fighting as an economy. And it's just entirely unacceptable to me to have a, a Congress that is wholly uninterested in learning about it. And I think that's your key phrase there, that it's learning about it, because there are a tremendous yeah. number of members of Congress for whom this is really, this discussion is at best esoteric. Yeah. And at worst, something that, that they're really not even familiar with. And yeah. when I talk to some members, uh, folks like Ro Khanna, they're very conscious of it. Yeah. And they do bring it up, but they often seem very much like voices in the wilderness. Yeah. If you got elected to Congress, do you think you could, just as even one member, have an impact on that? Absolutely. Because it's not, um, you know, I think I would be a slam dunk to sit on the, uh, the technology committee in uh, the House of Representatives. I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm a lot more qualified to do that than uh, sit on the judiciary, for instance. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very much my professional background. And, you know, it's true that the, uh, the chairman or chairwoman of the committee has the most power. But you know, there is a lot of great work that could be done on that committee, and that's my mission. You talk about these issues, and it's there are folks who really know this territory and can talk about it in a language that makes a lot of sense and works very well in Silicon Valley. But you also put a lot of effort into connecting these issues to the real lives of people in Massachusetts, the people you would represent. Yeah. So there's not a, it's not a, a, a D-link. You actually are bringing it together. And I think that's one of the more interesting things about your campaigning. It's a, it's a lesson I've had to learn, again, uh, leading an engineering team. Uh, when I talk about graphical um, APIs, I can get really technical. And uh, I learned early on in my career, there was no point in knowing this stuff if you could not, uh, if you couldn't express it in a way you know, normal people can understand. So I think what the challenge is with technology is, you know, it seems like something that is, um, it's esoteric for many people's lives. I think that's the perception. We need to let the American people understand when we're talking about cyber warfare, you know, we're really talking about if you're going to have a job, you know, when we're talking about uh, misinformation, we're talking about the health of our democracy because democracies cannot stand if the people don't have the information they need to govern themselves. You know, these are incredibly critical issues, and it just does not seem to be a priority right now. So we've got to go make that case to the American people. That's an important message, not just in congressional races, but frankly, at the presidential level. Yeah. Uh, hey, you're also a very fun person. <laughs> you ride a motorcycle. I do. I love to ride. You also, uh, you're interested in rock and roll and in music. Is there anything you're listening to? Uh, do you listen to anything while you're campaigning or anything inspire you? You know, I got to be honest, I'm the biggest EDM nerd uh, you're ever going to meet in your life. So uh, I love everything from 90s hip hop. You know, I'm the generation that grew up with Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. So yeah, you're talking Big Daddy Kane. Uh, then you go over to like things like Chemical Brothers, Prodigy. I love anything that pushes the adrenaline harder because there's no better feeling than being out on your motorcycle on a windy road and just being in that groove and touching your knee down to the pavement from leaning, it is just amazing. 
I'm going to tell you, if we get a member of Congress who, who can start uh, quoting Chemical Brothers and Prodigy, who knows? <laughs> who knows what happens in our politics? I'm wondering, you know, when I win, I'm going to see if I can get them to come play at my inauguration party in D.C. I think that's a party I would want to go to. Boy, uh, I'm going to tell you right now, if you can improve the quality of the swearing in parties and inauguration parties, that's a, that's a very strong argument for you. It's a low bar, but yes. <laughs> Brianna Wu, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for sharing so much of your, your own experience. And thanks for joining us on Next Left. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Join us next week as we take the next left with Congresswoman Deb Holland of New Mexico. She's one of the first two Native American women to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. We'll be talking about voter suppression, Standing Rock, Trump's attacks on women of color, and what it means to bring diverse voices to a Congress that for too long was too narrowly organized. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia steiner Evoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week was by Brianna Wu herself. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. 